It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's been the subject of controversy for years. Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, a legal shield for social media platforms. And Congress has been debating whether it should be reformed or revoked. Repealing the law may be the one thing that President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump agree on. Of course, not for the same reasons. We must hold social media platforms accountable for the national experiment they're conducting on our children for profit. The big tech persists in coordination with the mainstream media. We must immediately strip them of their Section 230 protection. There's been no action in Congress in the face of partisan differences. And now the Supreme Court has decided to step into the middle of this politically fraught debate over whether some of the world's most powerful tech companies should continue to be protected or should be held accountable for third-party content. My guest is Eric Goldman, a professor at Santa Clara University School of Law and co-director of the school's High Tech Law Institute. So, Eric, tell us about Section 230. Section 230 says that websites aren't liable for third-party content. It's a really simple premise. The idea is that people who post content take responsibility for it, but the services that they use to post that content don't. Both cases the court is going to consider involve terrorist attacks abroad, one in Paris in 2015 and another in Istanbul in 2017. Tell us about the plaintiff's arguments against Google and Twitter. Well, really, both of them involve pretty much the same set of facts. They involve terrorist attacks abroad that were allegedly related to social media. And the relationship can vary based on the facts, but the general gist is that the terrorist organizations recruited and radicalized readers online. And because of that, the services now take responsibility for the actions that are done by these terrorist organizations or the people that they radicalized. So are the plaintiffs in these cases complaining about the algorithm-generated recommendations? Well, that's part of it. You could look at it a little bit more broadly. I think the starting premise is that the terrorist organizations should never be online in the first instance. And if they are online, then the social media services giving them that support now take responsibility for any of the consequences that flow from the visibility that they gain online. 
So it's really one of these situations where social media services are just one of many possible contributors to the outcome. And we don't hold everyone who has that kind of tenuous connection to a terrorist attack responsible for the attack in the first instance. Isn't it a leap for the plaintiffs to go from showing social media postings to proving that the platforms were responsible for international terrorism? It is a leap, and it really gets to the core of the underlying social question here. Assuming that a terrorist attack is done by an individual who's had many relationships in life, they have a landlord, or they have a homeowner association, they have a job, they took the bus to work, or they have an internet access provider who allowed them to connect to the internet. All of those people, in theory, are all some very indirect contributor to the activities of this individual, but we don't hold them responsible. So we make a distinction in the law between what we call but-for causation, could never have happened without this person doing what they did, and what we call proximate causation, the people who actually are close enough to the outcome that they could have changed the outcome. And it's that last piece, the idea that social media services are the proximate cause of a distant terrorist attack, just doesn't really pass the sanity check. We look at them and we say, that's too far, that doesn't make sense. And a number of the related cases to the ones that are going to Supreme Court have failed for that very reason. The court said we cannot hold social media services as the cause of these unfortunate events. So is the Supreme Court going to decide that question? I don't think they're likely to address the causation piece, but it's impossible to ignore. It's the same instinct that you had when you asked the question. The Supreme Court justices are going to look at this case and say, wait, why are they the defendant? Why are we talking about the social media services when there's all these other people who are equally situated and no more responsible? However, the legal question in front of the court doesn't reach that causation question. So they may not talk about it. They may not even feel like they have the authority to do so. So the Ninth Circuit, in the same ruling that it absolved Google, basically, for the Paris attacks, said that Twitter, Google, and Facebook had to face claims that they played a role in the Istanbul attack. Explain the difference there. So some of it's just based on the way in which the arguments are made. These cases have each had their own unique twist to them. And so in that particular case, the question is actually a technical statutory question. Congress enacted liability for people who might have played a role in contributing to terrorist attacks. And in that particular case, the court said that the statute didn't apply. And so the way that the case was framed for the Ninth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit said, that statute could apply, we need to go and ask more questions about it. And that's now what Twitter is appealing up to the Supreme Court to ask the question whether or not the statute even reaches the activity. If it doesn't, then Twitter's not liable because the statute never created liability. Is it happenstance that both these involve terrorist attacks on foreign soil? No, I don't think it's happenstance because, in fact, many of the cases that have been brought in this genre, and there are about 20 of them that have been filed across the country, have involved foreign terrorist activity. Some of them have involved domestic activity. Ultimately, I don't think that it really matters from a legal standpoint. There's so many legal reasons why the services shouldn't be liable, regardless of where the terrorist activity took place. So these cases are the first test of Section 230 at the Supreme Court. What does it tell you that the Supreme Court agreed to hear them when, like so many other cases this term, it didn't have to, meaning there was no circuit split that it had to resolve? Yeah, so 
One of the most common reasons the Supreme Court takes a case is because of circuit splits, where two federal courts are in disagreement with each other and they need the Supreme Court to weigh in and resolve the dispute. The problem in this particular case is that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals opinion had its own intrinsic split. There were three judges on the panel, and they wrote three different opinions that were wildly different from each other. They were not in sync with each other. So though there wasn't a circuit split, there was an intra-panel split. Now, normally those get resolved by what's called an en banc procedure. The Federal Appeals Court can say, we need to have more judges listen to this case so that we can figure out how to come up with a more harmonized resolution. The Ninth Circuit didn't do that. So because the Ninth Circuit opinion was so messy and the Ninth Circuit didn't clean it up, it created the possibility for the Supreme Court to say, there's a mess here that we need to resolve. Two of the opinions also basically said, we think Section 230 is a problem. And so it created a flag for the Supreme Court to pay attention. There's a statutory problem here that needs attention. Maybe you ought to take a look. So it was a combination of the messy opinion plus what the judges said that I think attracted the Supreme Court interest. Justice Clarence Thomas had already expressed interest and indicated that he's willing to change the law if Congress isn't. Well, we have to assume that Justice Thomas was in favor of hearing this case because he's basically begged plaintiffs to bring Section 230 cases to him so he can find a way to try and eviscerate it. So we know that Justice Thomas is already coming in as an extreme Section 230 skeptic. He's literally told us when nobody asked him to. Google's chief executive officer told lawmakers last year that revoking Section 230 would mean that platforms would either overfilter content or not be able to filter content at all. Do you agree with that? I do. And it's a very well-known phenomenon with online content. It's something that I call the moderator's dilemma. The idea is that if you're liable for trying and failing, then either you don't try at all so that you can't fail, so you just let everything go through, therefore you haven't intervened at all, or you over-respond and make sure you don't fail, which is impossible, but it leads to lots of collateral damage as well. There is, of course, the third option, which Google isn't likely to do, but many other services will, which is to exit the industry and say that it's not profitable to do nothing or to be perfect, and therefore we have to simply find another line of business. Let's say Section 230 is gone. What effect would that have on social media companies? It's not just social media companies. It's the entire Internet. So much of the Internet is driven by user-generated content, us talking to each other. And Section 230 is the legal foundation that enables those conversations to take place without the services being liable for facilitating or enabling those conversations. So without Section 230, many of those conversations will simply stop. They won't be possible to do anymore because of the fact that the legal liability will overwhelm the benefit. Now, some of the services that are existing today are big enough and powerful enough that they will either find a way to thread the legal needle and accept whatever collateral damage comes from that, or they will move towards professionally produced content. They'll stop letting users talk to each other. They'll pay some people who they trust to submit content that they will accept the legal risk for. And as a result, it becomes a lot more of the Internet being people talking to us, not us talking to each other. As I understood it, this was about algorithm-generated recommendations. Could the court just eliminate those? In theory, one, one solution is that the Supreme Court could 
say that, quote, algorithmic recommendations are excluded from Section 230, but Section 230 otherwise remains intact. That would be a massive strategic loss for the Internet. And the reason why is because there's no principled way to distinguish between algorithmic recommendations and any other promotional or curatorial functions that Internet services perform. So basically saying that algorithmic recommendations are out of Section 230, we say there's no way to promote or encourage readers to look at particular types of content and still stay within Section 230. That would lead to an Internet that looks a lot more like Google Drive or Dropbox. The services could only provide dumb storage lockers and a URL that the users go out and promote, and that would be the only thing that, that wouldn't be covered by Section 230. Everything else would be gone, and I don't think we want an Internet full of Google Drives. Besides Justice Thomas, are there other justices who have expressed displeasure with Section 230 and might be willing to tamper with it? You know, it's it's a little hard to read the judges nowadays um, because every speech-related question is intrinsically linked with the culture wars that have roiled the Supreme Court. So it's unclear whether or not judges who in the past have stood for less government intervention into private activity still stand for that, or judges that believe that uh, Internet services should be doing more to remove uh, uh, content will feel that way when it comes to uh, the uh, implications of that. So we're actually kind of in in a limbo with the other judges. We don't really know where they're likely to come out. And this is of substantial import because not only are they going to wrestle with the questions in the Section 230 context, but there will be another appeal of laws coming from Florida and Texas that will ask the judges to weigh in further on the ability of Internet services to moderate content from users. So they're going to be having to answer this question, and we don't know what they're going to answer, and their decisions are likely to shape the future of the Internet. So 2023 is going to be a very scary time for the future of the Internet because the Supreme Court's going to decide it, and we don't know what they're going to say. And, Eric, the cases involving Texas's social media law and Florida's social media law, where there's a split in the circuits involving similar laws, do you think the court will take that case? I do think they're going to take the case. And the reason why, in part, is because of a opinion that came out of the Texas law on the Supreme Court's shadow docket, where three judges led by Justice Alito said that they think that these cases should be granted certiorari. You only need four votes. So if any one of the other six think that they should take this case, then the votes are there. So I'm highly confident that the Supreme Court's going to take the case. And when they do, we have another battle royale over the future of the Internet. Finally, Section 230, do you think it's something that Congress should take up and work on, or do you think it should just be left alone? We benefit every day, hour by hour, often minute by minute, from Section 230. Though times that we're talking to each other online are some of the most important and common moments that we have using the Internet. So even small changes to Section 230 could have dramatic effects on the way that we spend our time the way that we enjoy our lives, and the things that we're able to do. So I think we actually have it pretty good from that respect, in the sense that there's a lot of things that are taking place today that only are possible because Section 230 enables them. So if Congress wants to take a look at Section 230, that is their prerogative. And they have asked questions about algorithmic recommendations in some of their draft bills. 
However, the Supreme Court should not be the one that reshapes Section 230. If they think that Section 230 is miscalibrated, they should tell Congress that, but they shouldn't go and change it. So the fact that the Supreme Court might change Section 230 is what really panics me, because then it creates the possibility that unelected justices are making decisions that will affect our daily lives in ways that it's really impossible to contemplate. So the stakes are so high. So the court is stepping into yet another controversial area this term. In addition to voting rights, affirmative action, gay rights, the environment, to name just a few, it's going to be quite a term. Thanks so much, Eric. That's Professor Eric Goldman of Santa Clara University Law School. He's also co-director of the school's High Tech Law Institute. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.